Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. This is the second in a two-part series discussing the aftermath of the May 1954 United States Supreme Court decision in the case of Brown v. Board of Education, in which the Supreme Court unanimously declared that segregation in public education is a denial of equal protection of the laws. In this edition of Radio Curious... We'll visit again with Dr. Elizabeth Allen, a professor of nursing at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. As a high school student, Dr. Allen was one of the first African-American students to integrate the West Virginia high schools in 1957. We begin our conversation with Dr. Allen when she discusses how she was able to successfully get through the educational system and what changes have occurred in education since that time as they relate to African-American students. Getting through the system had to do with having supports. One of the things that's happened with the racial integration of schools, has been the change in the race of the teachers. Because I come from an all-black school and and was in an all-black school until the 11th grade, which was the first year that racial integration occurred, was that the teacher, that the the African-American teacher sent me to the white school because I was a mathematics major and I wanted to be an engineer. But when I went, I had to take a class in solid geometry, and I was way behind the white kids. And so when I asked the teacher if she would help me, her comment to me was, we might have to let you all in in, in our school, but I don't have to answer your questions. And that was correct. She didn't. But the thing that I had that students today don't have, is that I could go back to Ms. Gordon, who is my math teacher, and ask her to help me. And she did. And so whenever I had trouble in math, I could go back to her. When I graduated from high school, and I was a merit scholar, that the whole graduating class from Douglas, which was the black school, came to the assembly. And so I asked Miss Gordon, I said, why did that happen? And she said, we sent you to the white school. We did not give you away. And that was extremely supportive to me because I had to go there, but she didn't give me away. And I knew that I could have gone to any of the teachers that I had had from first grade through the 10th grade, and they would have helped me. I knew their names, I knew them, and that they were invested in my success. That is not true now. 
as teachers have moved away. They're not necessary, and I'm not saying that teachers are not invested in kids, but they, their purpose was to help us to succeed. They understood how we talked. For example, the whole issue about Ebonics took a direction that made absolutely no sense because that decision was based on teachers who taught children who spoke differently how to understand what the children were saying so that they could help that child understand how those languages interfaced. That didn't happen. Well, let's talk about the language of Ebonics, mm-hmm. how, how it developed, where it's spoken, and where it's not spoken. The truth is it's spoken everywhere. And I pay attention. You may well know I worked in the South, in the hard South, in South Carolina, for four and a half years. I got my doctorate from the University of South Carolina. And so I spent a lot of time in the fields trying to understand what was being said, what was going on. And there were things that I learned. One of those things, and it's become so important to me, is that words that are consistently used together become one word. Let me tell you what I mean by that. The words mashed potatoes, okay, that's two words, right? But those words are consistently used together. So it becomes one word, which is mass potato. If phonics are applied to that word, the child will misspell it because the concept of phonics is that it will assist you in spelling the word. So children then are punished because they can't spell the word. It's not that they can't spell the word, and it's not even that they don't know the word. It is that the two words are used together. And you know what? Most African Americans I know who have spent the majority of their time in African American society and culture will do that. But... I understand that it's two words so that I can separate them. Teachers do not understand that. And so children are punished. So it's used everywhere. And I always remember one of the things that my grandmother used to say to us when we grew up. She says, if you talk certain ways, you will never get to be a telephone operator, because in my days, African-Americans could not be telephone operators. And she'd say, because they will know that you're colored because of the way you talk. And so she would make us practice speaking each word independently rather than putting the words together because it affected the way you got a job. And I have to tell you, that still exists. It seems like that you received extensive support from teachers 
and from family members. Yes. But you haven't mentioned who those family members are and what they said to you that that moved you, that supported you, that has allowed you to become the person and the advocate that you are. The most important person in my life, of course, is my grandmother. Um, my, my mother died when I was four, and she died of tuberculosis, and people still don't don't believe that those kinds of things happen in in the colored tuberculosis sanitarium. Um, and my grandmother was a very strong woman. She's made out we could, my sister and I said she's made out of pig iron. But she had a very clear view of the world. And you were living where at this time? In Huntington, West Virginia. Uh-huh. Can you give us a year? Oh, my my mother died in 1944. And so I, I was born in Huntington, and I left Huntington in 1961. So I spent my whole years in Huntington. Well, tell us about your grandmother. My grandmother's father was a freed slave. And uh, contrary to what a lot of people believe, the Emancipation Proclamation only freed slaves in the states that succeeded from the Union. So border states, slavery still occurred, and they were freed by the 14th Amendment, not by the Emancipation Proclamation. West Virginia was a border state. So slavery existed a long time after the emancipation of slaves in the South. So my grandmother's dad was a slave, and there were very limited educational opportunities for blacks, as, as you well know, it was against the law to educate slaves. So my grandmother only finished the sixth grade. But she recognized that if you that she recognized that you had to go to school. She recognized that you had to learn how to read, write, and do arithmetic. And that those were the three marks of old African of of old black schools. You had to read, you had to write, you had to do arithmetic. And in addition, you had to be able to do some kind of you had to have some kind of skill that you could make it. And so all girls had to learn how to sew and cook and we did this in element in school. And all boys had to learn how to saw, hammer, nail and and wire. And so teachers were invested in you learning all of those kinds of things. And teachers, because they're from the same society that I was from, they were the same culture that I was from, they may have been teachers, but they really understood what it was that you were trying to deal with. And so going through school, I could always go to my grandmother, and my grandmother died at 99 and a half, and I already had my doctorate then. But I could go back and visit my teachers. I could always go back and I could talk to them. Um, and I'm from a two-room school, and Miss Warren and Miss McGee were very firm on the kinds of things that you had to learn how to do. You had to learn how to talk. You had to learn how to write. You had to learn how to do math, but you also had to learn to express yourself. 
you had to learn about the world in which you live. So geography was absolutely necessary. None of those things are necessary in today's world. I want you to tell us why and what has brought about those changes, including the the subtleties that exist. But before we do that, I want to say that in this edition of Radio Curious, we're talking with Dr. Elizabeth Allen, a professor of nursing at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Liz, how have those things changed? I think they've changed in a lot of ways. And part of them have nothing to do with the African-American culture, but have to do with the world in which we live. Grandparents were extremely important in African-American families. They lived there. They were the ones that passed on the things that you were supposed to learn. They taught you. They worked with you. Now, the jobs are very different. The world is very different. And those fountains of knowledge that we had before, we no longer have. And so children are left to flap around. And flap around meaning that, that there's nothing much to anchor on to. I think that the other thing, and I, you will probably get a lot of negative response about that, about what I'm getting ready to say, and that is that I think that the social service system has led to a lot of helplessness on the parts of persons who've used them. They tend not to be set up to assist people, but rather to make them more dependent. And if you look at those systems, they are generally run by whites who get high salaries, and they're populated by minorities, people with little or no power. And when they attempt to get that power, they are punished. And so there, is a, there seems to be a system of planned helplessness and planned hopelessness. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. To education, I never remember seeing children placed in special ed. We never had any special ed. Does that mean that children all progress at the same rate? No. But because I was a smart kid, and I was smart as a kid, the kids who didn't learn as rapidly as I did, I got to learn teaching and leadership skills. So I got to work with the kids who didn't move as rapidly as I did. They were not separated off and placed off in a place where it's almost like never, never land. Testing in the days when I came to school was not an attempt to place you any place, but so that the teacher could look at it and see what they needed to do different that could help you. That's not the way that it is now. And so kids, if you look at special ed classes, those are populated by poor kids, by African-American kids. Are these the subtleties that you refer to? These are the subtleties. These are the subtleties. And most of them are taught by white teachers. Back a few years ago, when teachers could not get jobs, teachers were going back into special ed because there was always going to be a place. 
And those kids don't tend to be able to get out of those classes because they're not taught the same things as kids in the regular classrooms. The leadership and the teaching skills. Yeah. They, not only that, they're not taught the scholastic skills either. From your years of experience as a student, as an instructor, as a professor, what changes would you call for to be implemented? Oh, my. You know, and I have to tell you, and this is from my heart, and I, this is probably a scary statement. I'm not sure that racial integration in teachers or students is best for poor kids. Expand on that. The way that it is activated today. Because being in a black school, and what I hear from my friends whose children are in predominantly or historically black colleges and universities, there is a real focus on helping kids know who they are, know how important they are, and generally building their ego to a place that they believe they can be successful. You've talked about the differences between um, materials that are available, uh, chairs, books, quality teachers. I'm not saying that the resources should not, not be shifted that way. So that if the state gives $6,700 per student. That $6,700 should still go per student. Back when I was, when I was in school, we got very little. As a matter of fact, we never even got substitute teachers so that if the teacher was out sick, one of the older kids would have to run that classroom. So what you're talking about is peer associations and cultural support for the students. It's cultural support for the students and cultural advocacy for the students. Explain cultural advocacy. Cultural advocacy means that I am, if, if I am in that role, then I really have to understand what is going on with this youngster in this youngster's life, in this youngster's culture. And I have to be able to speak for that youngster outside of the classroom. That's what I mean by cultural advocacy, is I can't go out and say that all black kids need financial aid. That is, that's a lie. They don't. All black kids do not need um, to be brought up to speed when they come to universities. But we, the minute we talk about integration of schools, we say we need more financial aid and we need more bridge programs. That is one of the subtleties. That's, that then connotes that no black kid has enough money, no black family has enough money, and that no black kid is smart enough. See, that isn't true. That's one of the subtleties. That cultural advocacy, if I were a cultural advocate, I would say we need to stop that. So you're saying that the topic that is being advocated comes from somewhere other than the black community. Oh, yeah. That mm-hmm. mm-hmm. not only is it being advocated, but that it's, as it, it's being implemented. And those determinations are not made by African-American no. people. They're made by someone else. Always. Always made by someone else. Why? Because one of the things 
that was also in that Brown majority opinion is that you can legislate location, but you cannot legislate how it activates itself. You can write all the laws you want to. You can put all of the things in that you want to. But unless you make a difference in the way those laws are activated, you really have not made much difference. Now, let me give you an example outside of education that may speak more clearly to this and speak to one of the other places that I am a massive advocate, and that is in veterans' health. You have experience as um, a Vietnam veteran. Yes, I'm a Vietnam veteran, and I was in Vietnam during Tet. And I chaired the Michigan Agent Orange Commission and, and worked with Congress around those issues. Very few people in this country know that there was a special program during Vietnam called Project 100,000, which drafted soldiers who would have been classified as ineligible for military service. Some of them could not pass the written test. Uh, they had some other kinds of difficulties. But they came in, and they were taken in to the military um, and put in, always in the Army, because draft always occurs in the Army. Okay, now, PTSD, as everybody knows, was a major issue coming out of Vietnam. That's post-traumatic stress post-traumatic syndrome. Post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, post-traumatic stress disorder is most common in those who have experienced direct hand-to-hand combat. Those are the death squads in which the soldiers in Project 100,000 ended up. And let me say here as a caveat, at, by the end of the war, there were 350,000 soldiers who fit in that category. Now, they were in armor, infantry, and artillery. Those are the hand-to-hand combat groups. When they came back, and they had post-traumatic stress disorder, the counselors and the therapists who worked in the VA very, very few who had ever had military, ever had military experience, would give them an access to diagnosis, access to means personality disorders. A personality disorder, which is where post-traumatic stress was placed in access to, made that soldier line of duty no which meant that the disorder that he, they, he now was experiencing was not caused by service in the military. He was like that before he came. Which was the reason why he would have been ineligible to be For drafted military into the duty. Army. He would have been ineligible, but now it's counted against him. So now he can't get veterans' benefits. Not only can he not get veterans' benefits, third-party insurance will not pay for it. So guess where they went? Prison. Prisons are full of Vietnam veterans, many of them who are part of Project 100,000. Because what didn't happen was education of the people who screened these soldiers. Prior to their being drafted. Not only prior to them being drafted, but when they came back from the war, they gave them a diagnosis 
that meant that they could not use the VA. Now, there's another piece to it. Even had he gotten services and ended up in prison, if he got six months, they lost all veterans' benefits. Now, how does that affect children? Those were the people who were the parents of the children that we're now seeing in prison, in jails, and unable to concentrate in school. You see, but nobody wants to look at that because that's one of the subtleties. That's one of the structural subtleties that negatively impact poor folks and inner-city folks and affects their kids. Well, Dr. Elizabeth Allen, I wish we had more time to pursue this topic. I'd like to thank you for joining us on Radio Curious and ask you to tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately. The new one by Ron Suskind on the price of loyalty because I think that the issues in the price of loyalty go beyond the interaction between the Treasury Secretary and the current president. I think that those issues interface with so much of the human interaction that goes on. How can I be loyal and serve two masters? I'm African-American, and I truly believe that there is a type of very destructive thing going on in, in the society. But I am also a U.S. citizen, and so that says that I have to be loyal in that way. And at what place do I come down, and where do I speak out, and how much do I have to pay, or how long can I continue to pay for being loyal to both issues? Dr. Elizabeth Allen, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Thank you so much for asking me. Dr. Elizabeth Allen is a professor of nursing at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. The book she recommends is The Price of Loyalty by David Susskind with former U.S. Treasury Secretary Paul O'Neill. The song you heard at the beginning of this program, We Shall Overcome, was recorded live by Pete Seeger at Carnegie Hall on June 8, 1963. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.